Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. Last week we talked about uh, the census, yes? That the book of Numbers is called the book of Numbers because there's a lot of enumerating going on. A lot of senpai. Um, a lot of censuses happen in the book of Numbers. Um, and remember that censuses need to be ordered by God, or else it's very bad. You don't count the people unless God says to count the people. And then there's usually some kind of reason that you're counting the people, because we don't just count people. People are not numbers, right? We've talked about this before, I think, in class, but the, the easiest way to dehumanize somebody is to give them a number as a designation and not a name. And for us as a people, this is a recent um, horrifying reality. Social security. Social security is one of the ways that it is certainly frustrating um, to be dealing with numbers as identification. Um, but the other, of course, is the is the number tattoo on the arms of those who survive, have survived the Shoah. Certainly that is an image emblazoned in my memory from day school where survivors came to speak to us every year. Um, and it was more common then, because I'm older, um, and it was something that was startling every time. And if you saw it by accident, it was startling. And then um, if someone was coming to speak about it, it was really, you, you almost had to avert your eyes because you're just drawn to, to that number. Um, because it symbolizes the absolute horror of turning people into objects. And so Torah seems already very aware that you don't do that. Um, and so if you're going to number the people in any way, it has to be done very carefully, and it's part of a sacred endeavor. Even if it means going to war, right, it was, that was a sacred endeavor in ancient Israel. And in our founding narratives, those are there, there's no separating, right, the civil and the religious when you're talking about a, a nation state with God as king. So a theocracy, you, you know, you don't separate the, the war from the mission, the divine mission um, of the people. So with that as our background, whenever we see, and God spoke to Moses saying, not so at Rosh B'nai Gershon, right? We're going to get this language about counting again. We know, okay, it's always a little tricky. Um, so let's see, let's see what happens here. Uh, somebody want to read at 421, please. The Lord spoke to Moses. Take a census of the Gershonites also, by their ancestral house and by their clans. Record them from the age of 30 years up to the age of 50, all who are subject to servants of the performance of tasks for the tent of meeting. These are the duties of the Gershonite clans <coughs> as to labor and porterage. They shall carry the cloths of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting with its covering, the covering of dolphin skin that is on top of it, and the screen for the entrance of the tent of meeting, the hangings of the enclosure, the screen at the entrance of the gate of the enclosure that surrounds the tabernacle, the cords thereof, and the altar, and all their service equipment, and all their accessories. And they shall perform the service, all the duties of the Gershonites, all their porterage, and all their service, shall be performed on orders from Aaron and his sons. You shall make them responsible for attending to all their porterage. Those are the duties of the Gershonite clans for the tent of meeting. They shall attend to them under the direction of Ithomar, son of Aaron the priest. So we get the language in Hebrew, verse 22. Naso et rosh b'nei gershon gam heim. So what did we talk about? What is the literal translation of naso et rosh? Lift up the head of. So why did we determine, according to some traditions, that Torah uses this language for counting? 
but we spoke specifically of the people who were going to be uh, in the military. And they were like lifting up their heads. They uh, were made to feel better about themselves. So last week, the lifting up of the head was about military service. So we said something about the fact that lifting up the head dignity. is something about dignity, right? That it's, it's counter to this idea that you're only a number, right? That if you lift up the head, someone else offered the fact that if you lift up someone's head, you face them. Very nice. So they've just come out of an experience of slavery in which the eyes would have been downcast, the face would have been lowered in servitude, and certainly, if not literally, then metaphorically, their heads were certainly not lifted up. So whether it's metaphor or literal, definitely, this seems to be in direct counterdistinction to how they've lived in Egypt till now. This is how they're supposed to live. Because that's what redemption means after all, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, right, so there's a, she's obviously going somewhere. With uh, she wants to go somewhere. Um, so redemption is about, right, we've talked about when you have a coupon and you redeem the coupon. When I have a 50-cent coupon and I give it to the cashier to redeem it, I am given two quarters. The piece of paper was never meant to be a piece of paper. It was meant to be two quarters all along, right? So when it's redeemed, it becomes what it was supposed to be all along. That's, they, this is how it was supposed to be all along, is you lift up the head of every individual, which is exactly the opposite of the experience for 400 years that they are coming out of. So when you're lifting up your head, you're looking at somebody, and somebody's looking back at you, motion to the, to the Gershonites. So you're being recognized as an individual. Very nice. When I lift up my head, if somebody's counting, then they're looking at me, I'm looking at them, right? That, that there is contact. There is a dignity to that. There is a recognition that I am someone, right? Each of us, our faces are unique, and we are seen in that moment by the person counting, right? So all of this language that we tend to just skip over when we read the translation is deeply, deeply meaningful for the rabbis. The Sfada Met has a whole piece on this about what it means to lift up the head uh, and what it means to count, that I count. Uh, this also is related to actually biology because if you look at the human being kind of as an animal, when our head is down, our shoulders come down too, and that is a posture of fear. I mean, you can even look at chimpanzees and, and, and other animals. You know, when you're kind of down like that, you're in fear, and when your head is lifted up, your whole body is in a powerful, in a more powerful position. So to me, the roots of this, it, it, it's not just custom. It goes way back probably into our biology. You can see it in animals. Yeah, and they say, have you heard about this thing that you're supposed to do, this power pose, the victory pose? When you look at um, people who've just won a race or they've, they've won something, this is a universal symbol of victory and therefore empowerment. Um, and so there's this whole study they've done with, you know, with testing people that if you do this for two minutes... It changes your chemistry. It works for depression. And it works for depression. Yeah, they're taking depressed people now and doing this and doing very aggressive sort of moves of the body. It makes the energy flow. And, and if you go into a meeting, an interview, so doing this, it changes the body chemistry. They've done the testing. Uh, everyone's now going to do it, of for course. The, for those listening, for those listening at home, internet, we are raising our arms above our head in a V. Um, for victory. For victory. Isn't that the famous picture of Richard Nixon? Right? Right, right, right. So... 
salutation. Yoga, the sun salutation, right? You're going to change the body posture. <laughs> right. All right, so what, what are we getting at? We're getting at, right, that, um, that this language is reflected, actually, it, like Bert says, in our... We, we understand it when we say lifting the head. It has all of these implications. It's also how we became bipedal, right? You know, that we had to get our eyes up and level so that we could see over the grass on the savanna what was coming. That's how we started walking on two legs and to get to the next tree because there wasn't so many trees anymore. To go to that fruit over there, we had to get over there. Um, so... Anyway, so we're in Asso again. Tell me again. to lift up, lift. to lift. Okay. So now we're all going to be aware of our posture as we continue reading that um, that they are to to do this lifting up of the head, meaning to count uh, of Bnei Gershon, the sons of meaning the house of Gershon, Gamhem, also them, Levait Avotam. According to that, their ancestral houses, lemishpechotam. According to their clans, very interesting discussion. I heard mishpoche. Very interesting uh, conversation with my colleagues on a conference call yesterday, led by Rabbi Sharon Kleinbaum, who is at Congregation Beit Simchas Torah in New York, the largest, one of the largest gay congregations in the world. She has been there for her entire career. Um, over a thousand uh, members um, and she was talking w- w- our conference call was on the topic of in the progressive Jewish world what are we dealing with you know post gay marriage in terms of LGBT stuff you know like gay marriage was the big focus rights it was a rights based discussion and un- until now and now it's kind of like it's taken for granted in a way, like yeah, 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 marriage, whatever. Like we, can, you know, so it's going to happen in our lifetime. Forty-four percent of our country lives in a state now that has legal gay marriage. So what does this mean in the LGBT community? What are the trending issues? And it's moved from rights to identity issues. And I'm only bringing this up because it's apropos. This levate avotam, according to their ancestral houses, because of the huge issues around gender and around moving away from a binary gender system of male-female to a much broader kind of understanding of gender as a continuum. There are some people in the LGBT community who do not want to use bar or bot anymore. So now, if we're dealing with a non-binary gendered system, how do you call someone to Torah who doesn't want to be designated bar or bot? And one way they're dealing with that at CBST is they are using levate avotam or mibait for short, from the house of. So r- rather than daughter of Yechezkel and Shandel in my case, Right, it would be mibeit Yechezkel v'shendel from the house of Yechezkel and Shendel. Very, very interesting. Very creative. Very, it's like go progressive Judaism. You have to love it that like they are on the cutting edge of some of these issues where it's like why would we continue to identify someone as bar or bot if they reject the whole idea of a binary gender system? But it's a great... Um, I'm sorry? And women in the rabbinate. And women in the are helping inform the discussion. Thank you. Yes. Thank it's you. A, it's a um, very clever, um, well-thought-out way of addressing it. Right? And, and anyone can choose it. Like, anyone can do it, not even because I necessarily reject... Who you are. ...who I am or that I'm female, but maybe but I want to say, you know, well, why do we do that? I'm going to start using... Me pay, you know, and so it just—it's a very thought out, very respectful, I think, um, and inclusive uh, terminology. Well, the other piece is we are in fact the sons, and we may be the biological sons and daughters of our mother, biological mother and father, but we are in fact the children of our house and of our home, which really shapes us, which is actually more than just the mother and father. 
and is more than biological right. relationship. Right. So we really but truly... I mean, regardless of whether it's bot or bar, the idea of saying, right. I come from the home of, right. is a much broader thing about where I am based, as opposed to just these two individuals. Right. And I think the other thing it, it affects, or, or does, is when somebody is a convert, <clears throat> they are bar or bot, uh. Avraham Visara. Now, there is nobody who considers themselves now the daughter of Abraham and Sarah. I mean, I still have my parents, and I said, I mean, and, and, and how many generations ago was Avraham and Sarah? I mean, I get the meaning. I'm not making an light in any way of the meaning of it, but, but it's always felt a little forced to me, right? Like, but if it were me bait Avraham the Sarah, now that feels much more like. I'm not saying you're now the Nicole daughter of Abraham and Sarah. I'm saying you are Nicole now from the house of Abraham and Sarah. That seems much more accurate, you know what I mean, a designation than son of them now. How do you avoid having to mention the, the person who is a male or female if you're from the house of... Is it, is it the house of your father or the house of your mother? Both. Both. Oh, so, okay. It's yeah, it's, it's just you're not designating. So if I am Rachel, right, you, you usually say I'm Rachel, daughter of. Yeah. So it's me who's being, my gender is being referenced with the designation bat or ben, right, daughter or son of. That's what they're getting rid of by saying Rachel, me bait, right, from the house of. My parents' names. Uh, both. Okay. Yes. It also uh, um, references the fact that you're not just the 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 child of a mother and a father, but there's there's the aunts and the uncles and the ancestors and everybody else that came before. Right, and that I think is a much richer, textured, nuanced way. That is, I think, what Bert was saying is that we we all really are influenced by all of that that you just mentioned, and that's from the house of, meaning there's other people in the house, right? And there's generations before that. And, uh, and I think that is a very, that's a good point that there, it represents so much more in terms of who that encompasses. Sarah? Can you explain? But there is still the fact that you're using the name Rachel, which is a female name. Mm-hmm. That's worth a lot. So... I guess you open one door in addition to the door that's already been opened. And, and some people change their name. Some people choose their Hebrew name. Some people, no, not their bar and bat mitzvah, they but what, I'm talking about when they're, talking no, I'm talking about when they get called to Torah as adults in the oh, synagogue. So it'd be interesting, what if we did move to Mibate instead of Ben or Bat altogether? <clears throat> then at Bar and Bat Mitzvah, you would call them to Torah as from the house of. Everybody could be designated that way. Yeah, yeah. Name. Your, name, your name, Sarah, yeah. Mibate, and your parents' names. <laughs> from the house of. I'm getting around. <laughs> what? Can you explain the difference between. The uh, ancestral house and the clans. Well, I think it's a higher hierarchy. So. What well, says here? Avotam and lemishpechotam. Um, yeah. So there's there's different levels, right? So you, the the smallest unit is the mishpacha, is the clan. That's the smallest unit in the ancient Near East. Now that's not what we consider a family. That, that, that's what they consider a family. Is your is your mishpacha? But it's bigger than your than what we consider a family. Hundred percent. Yeah. Because this is a new idea. The nuclear family is a brand new idea in the world. If you ask me, the world's largest failed experiment. You so mean how many people? Immediate family is the world's largest failed experiment. Okay. Yeah. Like this idea that family equals parents and their children. That that's a functioning family unit to me is a failed social experiment. I, I wish we'd see it already and move on, 
right, to, to living to in to larger, larger groups, correct, that, you know, that we, to put that much stress on the pair bond between the generally mother and father or whoever the two, that generation is that is reproducing, to put all that pressure on that pair bond, it's not working. And how do we know this? The 52% divorce rate. It's too much pressure, a lot of social scientists are saying, on that one relationship. Because now you are everything to one another. You are best friends. You are co-workers. You are dividing the labor in the house. You are co-parents. You are then supposed to be, oh, right, lovers uh, in there. You're each other's confidant. You're each other's... I mean, so it's so much to put on two people that are, are of the generation where they're producing not just some people, but like, right, they're, they're, they are the ones in charge of earning the living, whatever that means, right? In subsistence technology times, that meant somebody's either farming or herding or whatever, and other people are repairing and sharpening and cooking and healing. You're, there's a generation that's busy doing that. They are, for the rest of human history, supported by the elders who watched the children while the other people produced and or were schooling right people they were the ones governing the elders governed right there they were charged with the macro and, and to a large extent um, and a lot of real caregiving and then it freed up that generation that was producing Yes, and there's all ages in between that helped with various levels of preparation for cooking or preparation of herbs for healing or and um, tending the flocks. And now we ask two people who are doing all of that work to do it by themselves. But it's a very recent phenomenon. It is a recent, modern, in some ways a modern phenomenon that that is the normative unit and it's not working. Only in some places. Right, only in some places. Thank you. There Thank you, Robert. That's, that that is an important caveat. Only in some places. And, right, because other places where it's not true, they're still happy and functioning. Some places where it's even smaller than that. If you look at China, for example, or even in Russia, there are places where no children or one child is the norm, and the state is actively trying to destroy the family unit. So that the state becomes, I mean, this is part of the totalitarian idea, so the state becomes the whole unit. The family. Yeah. How large were the clans, by the way? I don't know. No, I mean, are we talking about 10 people, 100 people, 1,000 people? More than 10, people? less than 100. So, so figure aunts, uncles, cousins, grandparents, grandparents you know, the, 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 that, that's who would have lived. Some of the women would have gone, of course, the women would have married and gone to the, it's patrilineal and patrilocal. So it, they went to live where the husband's clan is, but then, but then the your clan's guys married, and those young women came. Is that what we call so, extended family? We would probably call it extended it's a family. Extended. A little bigger than extended family. Is in Polynesian cultures and, and others, uh, uh, you have that. You have the, uh, the community as your family. The whole thing. Right, and in, in every, every, every woman of a certain generation, of your mother's generation, you call aunt. Mm -hmm. yeah. And every man of that generation, you call uncle, because it is understood that that tribe is a family. And you're related that way. So this is how kinship terminology is so interesting, because it reflects so much of right, the functioning relationships, not necessarily biological relationships. You call them aunt if they are within your clan? No. Anybody. In your in your tribe. Yeah, in your clan, if any any one of your mother's generation, you call all of those women aunts. Because they are your aunts. You owe them the same respect and kinship obligations. You owe them all the same amount of aunt. Deservedness. <laughs> um, whether they are your aunt respect, right? Aunt respect. Whether they are your biological aunt or not. Now, I'm sure that had problems too, though, because the competition between different aunts, to, you know, high in the hierarchy or something. So I mean, nothing's perfect. No, I'm not suggesting it's perfect. I'm saying there's just it's just interesting always for us to challenge our own ethnocentric, you know, position that this is normative. 
that only my parents' biological siblings are my aunts or uncles, right? It's just another. So when, like, back in the day in Ethiopia... Back in the day? Back when? Yeah. uh, Ethiopia... Uh, in Ethiopia, where clans—I mean, I think these clans are still probably important somewhat in Ethiopia, but it's changed a lot. Like when you read that book, I forget the Cutting for Stone. Yeah. No, I, but, but I read that too. Yeah, that that as well. But the 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 woman, the the female, gen, the the raping and the they did it, and she went on to be the red tent, Dina. No, 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 no. no I know the one you told me. Uh, Hershey Ali, Hershey yeah. Ali, that lady. Okay. She, that, and those times, she, Anna Hershey Ali, you, do you know? She's okay. the one who really wouldn't allowed to speak at yeah, commencement. She wasn't allowed to speak at the commencement because she was going to say, because of, at Brandeis, the more voices, that she had written the book about female genital mutilation. Yes. Uh-huh. And, yes. And, and that's how, how, uh, how uh, women are treated. Islam. Okay. And and because there were a bunch of students at Brandeis who said, well, this is somebody who's going to say things against Islam. We shouldn't let her speak. Okay. So what is your point so, about her? Yeah, well, if you read the book, it, the history there is so yeah. heavy clan-based. Right. And everything is, this is someone, daughter of the clan, da, 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 da. but it seemed like the clan was much larger than 100 from back when, when in these times of this book. Right, so you, you, you know, always when we're using kinship terminology, you have to understand the culture to know what clan means. Right? You have to know for them what that means. I don't know, right, what clan in Ethiopia means, right? I know what it means biblically. I know what in the ancient Near East it meant. Well, sort of. <laughs> I mean, I would have to do, I'd have to go check my facts. So please don't take, yeah, it's please no go check my facts. It's no, it's no different than the word family, meaning different. Correct. Correct. Exactly. Correct. All right. So, anyway. So, why are you talking about all this tabernacle stuff? And, like, they need to remind themselves again of everything that they were. Okay. So, Laura brings us back to the text. So we are, um, we are coming out of Bamidbar, where we get uh, a description of the Kohatites, right, who have the sacred responsibility of porterage of the sacred objects of the Mishkan. That's what just happened at the end of the first parsha of this book um, that we didn't read, right? Because we're in the first triennial, we're in the first third of every parsha. Um, so, so Kohat gets, his clan gets that responsibility, which is also, of course, a sacred privilege, a dangerous privilege, but a privilege nonetheless. So now, right after that, we get the, after we get the instructions of how it is Kohat is to safely carry that stuff, Aaron and his sons are the only ones allowed to have direct contact, Right? They are the only ones with the nuclear protection suits. So they are the only ones who can touch it. They cover all that stuff. Then Kohat, the Kohatites go in and get it to carry it. So we're told about all of that. Um, and then the next sentence, which is the beginning of our Parsha, God speaks to Moshe and says, take a census of the Gershonites also. So Why? Now, Laura, what, why would it say the Gershonites also? Because they are going to be carrying uh, the tabernacle. So they're going to be doing important work, too. They got kind of bumped by the Kohatites, right, in terms of the Kohatites are getting, like, all this amazing business, right? Um, and who's the firstborn? Gershon. So it's interesting, right? So there's some tension, speaking of tensions, right, between clans. There's clearly tension between the clan of the firstborn, Gershon, who is not listed first and is not given the porterage of the most sacred stuff. Um, so an interesting, uh, interesting remnant here of some of that business. Um, whether we believe there was actually a Mishkan or not, 
Um, we, we do see a lot of this as evidence of tension between clans. Both the Moses-Aaron business, the Mushite clans, and the Aaronid clans, right? We see the northern tribes and the southern tribes, the Leah tribes and the Rachel tribes, right? We, there's lots of, we, if you look and you mine these stories for for relational things, you can find them everywhere. And this is probably some of that. That, that even in retrojecting, let's say it's mythology, that they, and they're retrojecting in the desert, this is what happened. They're retrojecting the tensions that are extant still in their memory, in their historical memory. Okay. So, so we're getting the Gershonites also by their ancestral houses, by their clans, record them from the age of 30 years to the age of 50. Why? Because these, this is the age that they are obligated to serve the Mishkan from 30 to 50. You don't want folks older than that schlepping heavy stuff. It's just not fair. That's not fair to ask them to do that. Why would you do that? And anyone younger than that might mess it up. Might be uh, called to, to service to military. This is not military. No, this I is yeah. But somebody under thirty would would qualify. Not for the Levites. So they have so they have the, all that time off until they get to be thirty. Correct. Do nothing else. Correct. They are. They are. They are. They are wearing tie dye and hiking in India, finding themselves. No. So they, pres- presumably, they are training, right? They are. They're learning the many, 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 many ins and outs of what it means to do this correctly. Um, and doing all the things one has to do. And they're making babies. And they're making babies. And they're raising those babies. And they're tending their flocks. Right? All those things that you had to do. And they have these internships. And then they have the internship. <laughs> yeah, good, Ruben. For 20 years, right? And they're surviving. 30 was not a young person. But you know something? The brain doesn't really, especially fully developed until the late 50s? The brain doesn't fully develop until the early 20s. Oh, 28. Wow. physiological basis, that makes some sense. You don't tell that right. teenager who knows everything. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Are we assuming that everybody lives to a ripe old age like Abraham and Sarah? So Certainly, 30 to 50 is not 50 is not a very. I mean, I don't So this is a very interesting question that you bring up. It happens a lot. First of all, the the pre-Diluvian ages are way big. This is in every ancient Near Eastern culture, by the way. Pre-Diluvian, huge. Six hundred. Noah was six hundred and what? Post-Diluvian, post-flood narratives, always much shorter. Um, so even in Torah, we get the extension of you know Moshe's life to 120, um, which is m- mythological, but not quite as mythological as 680, whatever. Um, so the question always comes up when we talk about the ages here, we have to deal with the fact that Moshe lives to 120, so 50 is not even middle-aged. Um, but I think that's not understood to be normative necessarily, even in these narratives. But whatever. The question always comes up. So in the ancient world that we're dealing with, what would have been really, whatever? forget what they're writing, what would have been really the age that they lived to? So a lot of times you'll hear pe- people say things like, well, in the ancient world, you know, people didn't live much past 40. You hear that a lot. And from what I've learned, um, and again, someone can check my facts, but what I recall learning um, in anthropology and, and other settings was that that's not true that you didn't live much past 40 in these times. People, most people, if you made it to the age of five, 
This is still true in the developing world. If you make it to the age of five, you're likely to live. But half die before the age of five for all kinds of reasons, right? So if you're adding all the people who die before the age of five to the average, and some people live into their 90s, then if you average all these infants and children or people who die in war, right? And childbirth, so you're talking their 20s and 30s, you add all those numbers, all those people to the people who lived in their, well into their older years, and you average it, you get 40. That is not helpful, all right? That is the average age, the average lifespan was 40. No. If you average who lived when, yes, you get 40. That is completely irrelevant, generally, to the discussion. If you survived childhood and you survived your war age and childbirth, you were pretty likely to live into your 80s if you didn't die of something else, right? And life was hard. I'm not saying everybody normative, but it was not unheard of for people to be old. When we read about King David, he's old. He's an old man, right? It's not unheard of. He had an easy life. He had good nutrition, right? He survived the military campaigns and then went home to live in a lovely, you know, palace. He's He lives into his 80s or whatever. So, um, so I think we just need to keep that in mind, Margo, when we're asking what was the average lifespan. Now, lots of stuff happened to people. It was common. You know, you got run over by something, you know, or you were invaded and dead now. So it's not that it was uncommon to die young, but it isn't because people back then just didn't live long if they were left alone. If they were left alone and given good nutrition, they lived healthy yeah, I mean, well, Lives. talking about averages that way is obviously statistically very sloppy, but you do have, you, do have uh, you know, sort of a, a secular rise in life expectancy at birth, not just yes. not just the distinction between life expectancy at zero and life expectancy at five, but uh, uh, I think it's probably fair to say that that you know life expectancy, if you made it to five was probably in the upper 50s or 60s. It certainly wouldn't have been 90. I mean, not even our life expectancy is 90. Right. Okay. Our life expectancy is is in the upper 70s. It's declining in Russia. It's down to the low 60s in Russia now. Uh, for new life countries. expectancy? Yeah, life expectancy oh, yeah. in the Soviet Union in Russia is going down. Uh, partly because of like, just really poor, poor health and poor it's the vodka. When I lived there, we had an expression, Russian men commit suicide with a fork, a spoon, and a match. A fork, and glass, and a match. All right, so, so the, the reason I bring it up is because, so, so Richard is the mathematical genius in the room, is completely right that life expectancy wasn't that you would live to a ripe old age, right, because of all of the ways one could die. However, when one looks at a 50-year-old, one shouldn't assume that they're about to keel over because most people lived until their 40s. That, that was my only point that I went on far too long about. Okay, so Laura keeps looking at me like, is she ever going to get back to the text? So um, in Besham Pam, right? You, in the name of Pam, you bring us back to the text. All right, so we're going to get from Gershon. What does Gershon do? Carry the screens and the cloths and porterage of screens and cloths. Cords. So this is what actually makes the mishkan, right? When you, I mean, it it's the it's the outer layer of the mishkan, right? The the big huge coverings that make the tent, the actual tent of the mishkan. So if you're in the mishkan, <laughs> if you're in the mishkan. And you're looking up, what do you see? (laughs) 
You see the, the tent. You see the t- top. Of, you see the underneath of that fabric, right? And what else would you see? What holds that up? So the, the planks go up, held together by poles, and on top, running the whole way around. If you're looking up, you're seeing the hooks, all the little ringy thingies. Right, the little we get the description of those. Yes. So when you look up in the tabernacle, you're looking up at that fabric and at those little hooky things that are made out of metal, like a shower curtain. Like a shower curtain. Lovely, Bert. A lovely image. So, so, so for the rabbis, we studied this on Wednesday night. Just so happens on Wednesday night we studied that. For the rabbis, they see this as a metaphor, because there's always spiritual truth to the Torah for all times. If we should think this is just about the Mishkan, God forbid, we are staying at the very shot, very simple, shallow level. Not the Torah shallow, God forbid. But there's a much deeper, richer, spiritual secret meaning to this text, of course. And that is that when you're talking about the Gershonites, you're talking about a certain type of person, a certain spiritual approach. And that is someone who sees the firmament, sees the sky and the stars. And what is our reaction when we really see the sky and the stars? Ah, wonderful, Sarah. Ah, year ah in Hebrew, which is also attached to what word in in English that we would use? Fear. Fear. In the language of the rabbis, trepidation. This is what it means by Gershon carried the curtain, you know, the, the coverings. Is it they, this is the spiritual type that is always approaching things from a place of trepidation. Now, that must mean that there's another type. <laughs> Somebody want to read at 29? Uh, before we move on to 29, I just wanted to point out that you had mentioned that there would be tension, say, and the Gershonites because the Kothites got mentioned second, but they're the ones who are dealing with the, the really, the really, really, really hot stuff. And, but it's, I thought it's interesting that the Gershonites take their orders specifically from Aaron and his sons, not from the Kothites. So the Kothites are not like, well, we're better than The bosses of you. We're, they're not the bosses <laughs> you. You have to, you, you just take your orders from Aaron and their sons. They'll tell you what to do. Right. Don't pay no mind to those Kothites. <laughs> That's exactly right. Well said. All right, someone read at 29. All right, so what do the Merarites, the house of Merari, what do they carry? The planks, the posts, the sockets, the rings, the pegs, the hardware. They're the teamsters. The roadies. Well, they're all roadies. So, um, so, so what does that if, we, if we've already talked about the metaphor of right of the you know the coverings and the stars, so what? Where do you think? What type are we dealing with when we're dealing with planks and pegs and poles and sockets? Practical the people. practical people, people who understand the halacha, they understand what is required. They ha- take some comfort in the fact that they can always know exactly what to do. Yes. And that is very comforting yes. to that type, yes. right? They know exactly. They do exactly. not want to go near a situation where they might not know <laughs> what to eat and what not to eat, right? It's structure. It's structure, mm-hmm. and we like it clear, and we like it purposeful, and we like it... <clears throat> or I get 
Exact. Sturdy and reliable, and they like it that way. Minnesotans are no fear and doubt. Plank people, yes. No fear, no doubt. All right. They're plank people. <laughs> okay, Bert, we can't post this podcast. So, I mean, in Minnesota, they were always very proud. They're a very proud culture of doing stuff and work and work. And I'll shovel my driveway, and I did it in an hour and not three hours, right? So there's this very, they're hardy. They are very proud of being hardy and getting it done and and self reliant. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and well, they should be. You gotta be tough to live there, you know what I'm saying? You have got to be tough. It's interesting, though, that the two different clans, they they each have jobs they need to perform, but. They cannot, they cannot complete their job without the other doing. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. So what we didn't read was Kohat from the last Parsha. They're dealing with the sacred objects, yes. But the other thing that they carry, um, or that Kohat carries, is the ark. So carrying the ark on their shoulders... So after that, we get also, right? We just saw, right? Also, you should number Gershon and Merari. But what do you think also means? Also. <laughs> you mean like an afterthought? So, thank you, Sarah. Because the important thing is the ark. The important thing is the ark. And what type are we dealing with when we're dealing with the ark? What's in the ark? All the sacred writings. All the sacred writings. Torah. You're dealing with rabbis. You're dealing with rabbis. So for the rabbis, what is the most important? Right? Torah. Kehat is the one who carries Torah within. Has internalized Torah so that when confronted with doubt, they don't freak out. It's a slogan I love. When confronted with doubt, they don't freak out, right? They, they um, Asian Near Eastern, right? Ad campaigns. Um, so they can figure out, they don't, they don't need to stay within planks and pegs and poles, and, right? They don't, they don't need it to be clear. They're okay with figuring it out as they go because they carry Torah. They'll figure it out, right? And those who are ruled by trepidation, right? Very different. So these are three different types. So the other question that the, that the teacher, the Me'ashiloach, that we studied on Wednesday asks is, are these, in fact, three different types or are these portions of each of us you know, and to what degree are we each of these are there periods in our lives where we move from one to the other is it developmental do you move from one to the other <laughs> to an extent alright so I'm going to give you my notes from Wednesday night about um about these, it's attached to something else that I don't think we're going to get to. Um, the ones who deal with the ark uh-huh. are also freer in their thinking and terms. part of why they're not afraid is because they will reinterpret things differently in accordance what the needs are. Very well said, Sarah. They are not afraid because they know they can translate Torah into whatever circumstances may arise. Yes? So, if you look at Reb Mimi Feigelson's analysis of the Mehashiloach's analysis of the Torah text, did you follow that? Yes, sorry. Which I didn't give you. I have it here if you want it. These are my notes on it. This is, these are her 
categories based on the Me'ashiloach's teaching. I've just condensed it for you. Okay? So look at Reb Mimi Feigelson says, never venture, Gershonites, right? Never venture into the world for fear that they will not know what to do in a new situation. The more they avoid doubt, however, the more doubt kind of rules their lives. You know people like this? If it's unclear, I'm not, I'm not going out there because it's, right, it, it's unclear. So I'm going to stay home because you never know. If you go out there on the road, you never know what's going to come up. You never know what's going to arise. So it is safest to stay home. Do not lean in. Unless it's at home and you are familiar with a, a, every aspect of it. We're going to go not to Kehat next, but Merari, because Kehat, of course, is where the Meashiloch is going to find the highest form of this. We're going to Merari instead, which is on the back of your page. Here, see this? Go, go to the back of that page. Yes? Merari. Yes? They'll go on a trip, but they're going to go on a trip where everything is taken care of. Every hotel you stay in is going to be a kosher hotel. Somebody has already checked that the hashgacha at that hotel is acceptable to your level of kashrut. Your rebbe approves of the hashgacha at that hotel. And you know that the trip will stop by Shabbos, so you can light candles and, God forbid, won't violate Shabbat in any way, shape, or form. So, yes, I will venture out. As long as the planks are in place, yes, so that I'll go out. But I need to be sure of what's going to happen if doubt should arise, if there should be a challenge, if there should be a question. I need to know it's going to be okay and dealt with, yes? Kehat, on the other hand, walks in unchartered territories and proceeds with assurance because they know they will always be able to, in Reb Mimi Feigelson's words, claim God's will. Interesting language, right? That, that they will always be able, able to discern what would Torah call me to right now in this questionable situation. If it's a vegetarian restaurant, can I eat? What's going to be trafe in a vegetarian? So I'm going to go to the kitchen, and I'm going to ask. So do you ever use any oyster sauce or anything that has any kind of animal product in it? No, we do not. Then I can order anything on the menu with confidence. Yes? So that they trust that they can walk through the world, they can go on the journey, and they'll figure it out. Because they have internalized Torah in such a way that they believe that that they will figure out how to respond no matter what arises on the journey. Now, this is the preferred and the first, therefore, stated in Torah. The rest are also counted, also good, also holy and sacred ways of engaging, also. But as soon as you say also, it's not exactly kohat, right? So um, so I like it that our tradition tends to respect other ways of being, even if it's not right what, what we're lifting up as the be- not best, but I mean what, what, what you would like to grow into. Um, but it's not without its own danger. And the Meashiloach teaches that what is the danger for the folks who are like, okay, I'm going out there because I've internalized Torah and I am not concerned that I will be able to figure out Ratzon Hashem, the will of God. What is the danger? Is that I might not actually know the right thing to do and by accident transgress. Which is, of course, for someone who we're talking about the, you know, this way of life. That would have been the, the worst thing the slippery possible. Slope. The slippery slope? Ruben, what do you see as the slippery slope? Well, the, the, the fact that uh, you don't know uh, what's right or wrong, and so you, uh, you 
make some decision, it might, and that leads to others. So, so once I make that decision that turns out to be a transgression, that could lead to a bunch of other transgressions, right? So I eat that one dish, and it turns out so that's the, the restaurant doesn't use anything with animal products, but they get their dishes <laughs> from the restaurant next door that serves bacon and shellfish and trafe meat, and that dish is what I just ate off of. Now, every day I eat there, I transgress again. And again, and again, and again. So like Ruben says, that one transgression, right, it's a slippery slope to others, possibly. Laura, did you want to say something? Well, I, I think maybe just the example that, that I, I don't even, I'm not sure what you're saying. If, you, if, if these transgressions are, you're not even aware of them. Is it like strict constructionism where, you know, somebody, this is about a culture that must be like believing that God's taking notes. So even if I'm transgressing and I don't know it and I didn't mean to and I did everything in my, you know, in my creative power to figure out that I wouldn't be, so my intent is not to transgress, do you still get dinged? So, no, so it's an interesting question. So, so the strict constructionist answer is you do not get dinged because it was bishkaga. It was by mistake. However, we are not dealing with the level of demerits in the big black book when we're dealing with the Mashiloach. When we're dealing with the spiritual masters, their concern is about an orientation to the world. That if my orientation is of too much confidence in my ability to discern, the danger is the only day. In other words, for the most part, that's the best way to live. That I'm confident I can determine what is the what we would say in Reconstructionism is the right thing to do in this moment. The only danger is that we get too confident, I think is his warning, and then we're so sure that we'll be able to figure it out and then we don't, and we give money to a corporation that's actually poisoning children. We actually do something bad that has a negative impact. Yes, it's not about the demerit in the big black book. It's about you don't want to trans... You don't want to do the wrong thing. We prefer to do the right thing, and that if we get overconfident, I mean, confidence is good, and we should be... I mean, this is how I'm reading it. This is not even me. This is me. That's what I'm taking from it. Is, is um, when we get to the time of the of the prophets, is it reasonable to make the inference that what the, what the prophets seem to be most concerned about when they when they sort of speak on God's behalf and say, you know, this isn't what I had in mind. You're acting like this, this, this. This is what I had in mind. That the, the people are all like the Moraris in the sense that they have this kind of pleasant, pedantic view of how to go through life, and it kind of works for them, but they don't, but they don't, they sort of close themselves off from thinking of a, of a bigger way to look at the situation. Right, like technically, you've given all the offerings and your, you know, first fruits, and you've technically, but you have poor people, we're starving, okay. so... Right, but is that but is that also one of the reasons why, uh, when you were sort of uh, likening the Morari to the good folk of Minnesota, that, that God forbid, was, <laughs> that, that that this that it was viewed as not necessarily the best thing to be? Yeah, for I think that's what the Meashiloach is saying, right. that it's not the necessarily the best thing to be, that it's good. That's good. If you, because at least you're doing what you're supposed to do. That's a good thing. That's why it's also Gershon and Marari that count and that are involved in the sacred service. It's their job. It's fine. It's good. It's not. The Mashiloach is reading this to say it's not the best. Well, it's like the Kohas. It's like the Kohas are the physicists who are working on the Manhattan Project. And the Moraris are the people who help build the reaction. There you go. So, um, which which I find interesting because we're dealing with a community of Hasidim. You're dealing with a community that, in some ways, 
cuts itself off from the world. It dresses in a way that harkens back to the gentry of Eastern Europe from whatever era. Like they reject the 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 part, full participation in the journey, if you will, right? And and so for the Meashiloach to be writing that the planks that the Merari are not paradigmatically the best you should be is is interesting and in some ways revolutionary, right? To say, yes, we can lock ourselves in our yeshivas and stay in our borough, you know, of New York and never leave. And that's how a lot of people in that community think is the best way to live and that's how you should live. And yet here comes the Mayashi Loach to say, but that's not the, the best. The best is when you can walk in the world confident, right? So it's a very interesting thing. Yes, Robert. I guess I look at this a, a little bit differently. The, 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 and this kind of assessment, I think it's been done many times by sociologists and whatever. If you had a world full yeah. of uh, cohorts, this would not work. Right. 100%. Okay. So, you know, the other way to look at it is you need a whole bunch of different types of people to make the world go, go round as effectively as it can. Correct. And the Rebbe is teaching students that don't want to be the rest of the world. So, yes. Also, Gershon and Merari. Also, they're necessary. 100%. Meashiloach is talking to... The elite group you, you of students that you you want to be a professor like me, not a yeah, butcher. Right. But, in reality, but we need butchers. We all need butchers. Nothing wrong with butchers. Also, Gershon and Marari, nothing wrong with butchers, right? And but he's you not. Really want to be a professor? But you like really me. want to be a professor like me? Exactly. We get that in college a lot. That's right, Sarah. Yeah. I think I was very touched by your example of the because the kahat could be the ones who decide whether this is good for humanity or not and whether it should go at all, right? So I think the beautiful part about the kahats is that they are the most adaptable because they're thinking, how can we do this or that to make it work well and so on? But the danger is that they can be Luftmenschen. And what does that mean? People who are living up in the air yeah, and are not concrete implication. So that, yes, that's the danger, is that they'll think they know what the right thing to do, so they build the... Exactly. You know, they have the, the reactor built because we can do this. And, and we know everything. And because we know everything, right? And so the danger is, uh-oh, we didn't, we didn't think through, should we? That's the danger. And then we've, now we've built it, now it exists, and now what are we going to do? Isn't it fair to say that there is a danger in any one of, any one of these uh, characteristics? Or I don't mean individual, but I mean... The, what characterizes a clan that uh, they, they won't deviate from or whatever their whatever that gestalt is, there's going to be some danger in there. So I, none of them is perfect. It, none of them are perfect, hundred percent. And so, so I think the only place I would parse that a little bit is the only place I think. Reb Mimi sees danger is in Kehat. It's, it's less perfect to be Gershon or Merari, because if you just stay home, or you only go on an organized trip, there's a built-in limitation, and that it's safer, there's this built-in limitation, and he does see that, I think, as a limitation. It's not a danger, I mean, I guess extended far enough it might could be, but it's, it's certainly a limitation. Kahat has the ability to move past limitation into more fullness of expression, and that leads to danger. Right? There's an opening to danger there. And, and you had you had earlier mentioned something uh, 
an insight of yours that we didn't really pursue yet. <laughs> not, not, only, not only are these three different types of people, but there are also three different aspects of ourselves that, you know, that we, we all participate in greater or lesser degree to different combinations of these three types. And the, and the proportions are changing almost minute by minute. Some days we feel brave, some days we don't feel brave. Some days we think we know what to do, some days we don't think, what, aren't quite sure. Some days we're absolutely certain that we're, you know, for this one thing, we're gonna be obsessive about doing that right. And then there are a whole bunch of other things that, well, we'll just see what happens. And so it, it's constantly, it's constantly changing. Mm -hmm. We just have to be, we just have to be aware, we just have to be present <laughs> to who we are. <laughs> that's, all. That's, that's all. That's all. That's Richard all. says that's all we have to do is just be present to who we are, figure out exactly what, 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 what's going on for me in this moment so that I know best how to mitigate, right, what, what the restrictions or limitations or dangers are of, of my particular orientation spiritually at the moment. And then it's all good. Then it's all good. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday Morning Torah Study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.